Welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Paul Freer, former Chief Operating Officer of Collection House Limited. I hope you're having a wonderful day wherever you are listening to this podcast, and I can't believe that the year is flying by so quickly. I remember being told a while ago that as we get older, one year represents a smaller fraction of our life, and so the years seem to go by quicker and quicker as we get older and older. And I'm turning 48 this year, and uh, I'm certainly feeling it in terms of how fast this year is flying by. So I hope you're achieving great things in terms of your career, and the year is unfolding gracefully and elegantly to deliver you everything that you hope for. For those people who don't know me, my name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive. We recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients across Australia. And we also provide a range of career coaching and advocacy services for senior executives and non-executive directors who are actively looking for a new role. So if we can assist you either in terms of your own career or in recruiting senior executives for your organisation, I'd love to have a chat about it, so feel free to reach out to me via the Arate Executive website or via LinkedIn. Anyway, let's get on now and introduce our guest to you, Paul Freer. Paul Freer is a business leader with international C-level and general management experience within leading financial services organisations in Australia, Africa, Asia, Europe, the Indian Ocean, the Middle East, and the United States. An associate of the Chartered Institute of Bankers, he's also a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors, and has an advanced certificate in marketing. Most recently, he was Chief Operating Officer with Collection House Limited, an ASX-listed financial services organisation. Paul lives in Brisbane with his family. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Paul Freer. So, Paul, uh, welcome to the Arate podcast. Fantastic to have you along on what is a beautiful summer's day here in Brisbane. Uh, So for people who are listening to the podcast who aren't familiar with you and your background, perhaps talk about what you've most recently been doing professionally. Okay. Well, morning, Richard, and it's great to be here. Um, Most recently, I was uh, Chief Operating Officer at Collection House, which is an ASX 300 public listed company with headquarters here in Brisbane. Um, and I was leading all of their operating business units, of which was five, across the country and the Philippines and New Zealand. And they provide purchase debt collection services, outsourced collection management services, um, financial intermediary services now, and legal services, mainly focusing the insolvency area. So for people who aren't, you know, that familiar with the financial services industry, give us an example of, you know, who would be a particular client and the kind of things that you'd do specifically for them. Mm. Um, Well, on the outsourced collection services, perhaps the easiest to describe, uh, we would have clients um, that are typically a top bank, so all the big four banks, for example, and top utility providers. And when you miss a payment, perhaps to a credit card payment, or a car loan payment, it would be collection house staff in their call centres that would make phone calls to say, hi Richard, 
we noticed you missed your payment that was due yesterday. What are your plans about when we're paying that or when catching that up? Okay. And so we would do that all from uh, one day uh, overdue, as it would be known, all the way through to however long overdue to until somebody starts a payment pro program or starts to make payments. On the debt purchase side, we would actually, after a certain period of time, certain companies would sell those debts and then we would own them in the line finance company within the collection house group. Mm -hmm. So um, if I need my cash flow uh, more immediately, for uh, you would purchase the debt and then you would be responsible for getting that paid and in the meantime I get a percentage of my fees paid. That's correct. So, um, for example, a, a bank or a utility company may sell those debts because they want their finance area wants the cash now and the capital now. We would pay cents on the dollar a certain amount. It ranges uh, quite broadly based on the type of debt, uh, type of credit, how old it is, um, geographic workout, demographic makeup, and then that debt would then belong to uh, Lion Finance. Yes. It'd be their responsibility to follow that through to collecting back on that. Right, okay, great. And certainly looking through your background, your CV, you've had a career which has been across a broad range of financial uh, services and also in quite a number of different uh, geographies, different countries and certainly in Australia, different states and so on. So why don't we go back and start where it all began and talk to us a little bit about you know, where you were born and your early life prior to getting into your career. Okay, well I was um, English, I was born in the UK in um, Taplow um, and uh, my, my, I grew up at the local state school as it were. My father was uh, a factory manager for a very large um, public listed company in the UK and then he became a financial advisor mm -hmm. um, and so I went to state school until the age of 16 and at that time I then decided to leave school and, and get a job. And that was uh, not planned at the time. Uh, I actually went for interview experience and to test did I wish to go into banking as uh -huh. a career. Yep. So I went to get interview. I went to, I applied to and then went for interviews for the four main banks in the UK. Um, three of them offered me roles. Uh, one of them said, come back after you've gone to university. It's the best right. thing for you. Uh, one of those that offered me a role was Barclays PLC. Mm -hmm. And they, at the time, were launching a new training program that was akin to an apprenticeship where you could do study release to continue your education mm -hmm. uh, and then your financial services, education and banking qualifications, as well as working. So that was pre-graduating from high school or uh, between high school and commencing university? That was pre-graduating. Um, from high school, so it was just before I was doing my exams. Right. And um, your final year exams. My so. final year exams right. in high school. Yeah. Uh, and in the UK, you do high school, then you do another qualification, then you do university. Uh -huh. um, but it was for me really to test what subjects would I want to do in in the middle ones before then going to university. And and Barclays sort of threw a spanner in the works of that by saying you can study and work at the same time. Right. And that appealed to me for several reasons, because I thought, great, I can continue my education uh, on day release and at night school. I can get qualified and do an equivalent to a bachelor's degree mm -hmm. through, through that route, which is what I did. Uh, at the same time, I can work, gain the work experience so that when 
I am looking to get on their graduate development program, I'll have both the qualifications sure. and work experience. And would that have meant that it would take longer to complete the qualifications, say, because you're essentially doing it almost on a part-time basis? Um, it didn't. It, I chose to take one extra year, so I chose to do the degree in four years rather than okay. three. Yep. Um, and that was because I took extra subjects. I took taxation as an extra subject. Mm -hmm. um, but it didn't necessarily mean to. Okay. And so uh, you uh, joined Barclays and you had quite an interesting career with them. So why don't you talk us through that? Yeah, so I had um, 17 years with Barclays. Um, started as a, uh, a junior officer, teller. And then in my last, uh, that took me all the way up to going into um, operations, retail banking, corporate banking, business banking. Um, Barclays were excellent when I went on to their management development program, gave me an opportunity to uh, go and work for another bank. I was seconded to America mm -hmm. uh, in, into risk management. And that really gave me a flavor of both international uh, experience and culture at the same time as learning about myself in a lot of ways, both personally as well as business-wise. Um, then that led me to want to get into general management and, and move up the line, which I guess the last two roles at Barclays were the most interesting in that uh, after that role, I went back to the UK, undertook a general management role at, at a mid-level, and then went to a strategy and planning role. Mm -hmm. And then I went to become managing director in the Seychelles, which was what I would say was my first uh, MD, CEO, general management role. Mm -hmm. um, fascinating experience, two and a half years in the Seychelles, which is a, an island 4,000 miles from anywhere in the Indian Ocean. Right. Um, so I always liken it to heaven and hell in one place. Um, interesting job interview uh, process where I had three interviews and for the second and third interviews were trying to be uh, persuaded not to take the role right? Um, because the bank was essentially bankrupt in the sense at that time uh -huh. and the mandate was to look at could I sell the bank, close the bank or if I must turn it around. When you, you say the bank was bankrupt, you're meaning the Seychelles, the Seychelles business, uh, not the broader business. No, the broader, no. no, the Barclays broader business was fine. Um, the Seychelles business was a separate legal entity, so a separate bank, as mm -hmm. were all of the banks in different countries mm -hmm. uh, around Africa and the Indian Ocean. Um, and the role there was the, the bank, the country was going through foreign exchange challenges, and so it couldn't remit payments back to and pay dividends. So essentially it couldn't pay its overseas creditors as a bank um, and that was obviously causing internal challenges for the wider Barclays group with an asset that it had sure. that was uh, not able to pay dividends or and pay external creditors except for creditors in the country. So I spent two and a half years there um, and was successful in, in neither selling it or closing it down but in turning it around in essence which also uh, led us to co-support, co, co co-sponsor uh, the largest at the time government loan uh -huh. uh, structured finance facility that enabled the countries to start to move its economic situation in the right direction um, by growing the and investing in the bank and the local economy 
we were able to become the leading bank there that then generated more foreign exchange and created a more profitable, better cash flow, mm-hmm. which then enabled us to start paying external international creditors such as the, the group. And what were some of the uh, the critical things that you did to turn that situation around in such a relatively short period of time? Um, right at the start, Richard, and I've done this in quite a few roles, was to get a bank sheet of paper and look at what it is that the business is good at, mm-hmm. um, what makes profit, what are the profit margins, and what can it grow, so what's happening in the market, and then also how much technology is being used and what are the new services that the market is demanding or looking for that the organization isn't supplying and providing. And and at that time, uh, the bank had focused heavily on its retail arm, on its corporate arm had dwindled quite quite significantly. Um, However, it was the corporate business in Seychelles that was where the cash flow and foreign exchange coming in and out of the country was. So if you wish to grow that side, you needed to be a much bigger player in the corporate space. Mm-hmm. So I curtailed our retail um, endeavors and increased our corporate uh, aspirations and products and services. And at the same time, we launched an offshore bank because the country had just introduced offshore banking laws mm-hmm. and regulations. There was an offshore bank and, and they were starting to gain capital from overseas. And so we launched an offshore bank for Barclays there, as well as a credit card and new payments capabilities that weren't in the country. Mm-hmm. And so what that did was that stopped us from focusing on those parts of the business that while we were very successful, weren't generating the cash nor the profit margins and were utilizing a lot of capital and people resources to focusing on those areas that generated better revenue, profit sure. margins and what we needed at that time, foreign exchange cash flows. Okay, and from there off to South Africa. So yes, I um, I received a phone call after two years to explain that I was doing a great job and it was time to be moving on. So my three year term in the Seychelles came to an end after two and a half years. And what was great was it was a, I was then asked, could I go to South Africa to be MD uh, for corporate banking across Africa for Barclays? Um, so that was covering nine countries across Africa, one of which was the Seychelles. Um, and the corporate bank across Africa Barclays at that time hadn't been growing as much as had been, had, had been desired, had also been writing quite a lot of bad debts and provisions. And unbeknown to me at that time, I'd managed to grow the Seychelles corporate banking business to be the second largest book in Africa, even right. though it was the the 10th out of 12th largest country in business. So um, quite a nice fit from there. And having been an MD, I was able to effectively work across nine countries with the MDs in those countries, as well as the corporate directors and reported to me. Mm -hmm. And so spent just under two years in based in Johannesburg which must have been a from a purely from a cultural sort of lifestyle perspective going from Seychelles to Johannesburg uh, a bit of a rude shock I imagine yeah, it was a, it was a nice shock because in the Seychelles we had one TV channel right um, and it's an island so we went on holiday to see cities cars right. people shops yeah um, and while it was fantastic being able to catch fish. I'm not a great fisherman, but love right. to fish. Sure. Um, and beautiful beaches, there was other aspects that we missed. So yeah. Johannesburg was was um, fantastic, amazing wildlife. Mm-hmm. 
and a very developed functional sort of first world city mm-hmm. um, within an emerging world. Although with some uh, security type challenges. Security challenges. So we, my family went through the, um, the security training, which right. was a new experience. Okay. Um, wonderful, wonderful, friendly culture and people. And I, the role actually took me out of South Africa three days out of five a week. Because right. the, the South African business mm-hmm. reported into another um, managing director who was based in Johannesburg. And I had reported to me nine of the legacy businesses and legacy banks across okay. Africa. So I was traveling quite a bit across Africa, which gave me the, a beautiful experience of different cultures, mm-hmm. uh, different ways of life, different countries and economies, and multiple challenges for businesses at different stages of their business Mm. cycle. Interesting. And I note around that time you did some uh, ongoing professional development at London Business School and Harvard Business School. So uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so the London London Business School was part of a Barclays program for its leadership group. Okay, yeah. And um, so that was a, a really good opportunity for me to see myself in comparison to my peers to make good connections and friends and and relationships that would help me in in Barclays and help me achieve Mm -hmm. as as I achieve as a collaborator and a collective and um, so really enjoyed the time at London Business School and that was that gave me the um, the energy and enthusiasm to keep furthering my professional development in different ways as Mm -hmm. well and Harvard came about because I uh, was very fortunate with the uh, my line director who supported uh, an application for me to go to Harvard to look at achieving breakthrough service was the course right and one of the things that I brought to corporate banking across Africa was we need to put our customers first right uh, but we also need to marry that with community as well so we we got out in the community and it's about being a service orientated organization and that will lead to the benefits of winning business winning customers, improving relationships, sure. which ultimately grows revenue and profit, yep. rather than thinking we need to grow revenue and profit first. Mm-hmm. Actually, we needed to improve the service we provide at all levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, the course was very apt. I'd always wanted to uh, go to Harvard, um, and so it was a great opportunity. It was minus 15 when I when we right. got there. So it was a bit of an adventure uh, to get there. I actually landed in Philadelphia because there was a blizzard in, in Boston. Um, and the course was a lovely way for me to get a, a, a more rounded and holistic view of my personal capability, what mm-hmm. I'm good at, what I'm not so good at, in a completely different environment uh, with international leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that really was one of the um, initiators of why I then started to look outside of Barclays um, six months after having gone on that course. Right. And, and that was triggered by the fact that the the Barclays group were able to buy APSA and we'd built confidence with the Barclays group of investing more money into Africa and Indian Ocean by mm-hmm. you know the growth that I saw and led in the corporate banking arena that and the recovery of provisions that was going against us so we had a double positive to our profit we had revenue growth as well as clawing provisions back so we had very good profit growth and then Barclays purchased ABSA, which meant that we ended up with two corporate banking directors, as it were. Right. One a South African and one, a, one an Englishman, myself being an Englishman. Sure. Uh, so at that time, in, in sort of mid-2008, 
2005, um, it was time for me to look for another role within Barclays or outside of Barclays. Right. And the Harvard experience gave me, I suppose, the confidence and internal an external perspective on on Paul mm-hmm. um, to to look broader than just Barclays at that time. So I looked at both internal and external right. opportunities. And so, what uh, led you to make the decision to leave and join Lloyd's? Um, in looking externally, and at that stage of my career, uh, I was at a crossroads in the sense that I could see a strong positive career with Barclays. Mm-hmm. Uh, however. Good mentors of mine at the time said, if you stay with Barclays at this point in your career, it may be a decision that takes you the next 10, 20 years with Barclays because then it will become more and more difficult to yes. leave. Yep. Um, or you can leave mm-hmm. and your career will then take a different direction in the sense that you then will potentially work for different employers rather than one employer for, right. for your career. And we decided at that time we wished to emigrate to Australia. Mm-hmm. And so the 10, 20 year career with Barclays wasn't going to fit with the personal decision that we'd already made. Okay. And that decision was made around the fact that when we had our daughter, our first child, uh, we decided where would we like to bring children up into the world? Where's growing? Yeah. Where's got sun, sand and sea? Because right. we enjoy all of those. Um, and where's an emerging country? And for, for our sins, I speak a little bit of French, but that's it. So we're English speaking. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we started our emigration journey back in 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why then looking outside of Barclays became another sure. attractive option. So you joined uh, Lloyd's in the UK. You worked there for a while uh, and then uh, spent some time in Saudi Arabia. That's right. Um, Saudi Arabia wasn't on the list of places to visit or right. work with, to be honest. Um, and that role came about through networking when I was looking for opportunities. Mm-hmm. And I was happily at Lloyd's and I was approached by an executive recruiter um, three times. The first two times I, he, he, he said, Saudi Arabia, I said, thank you, no, thank you. Second time, I said, thank you, no, thank you. Third time, um, he said, Paul, They'd really like to meet you. You've got a broad experience, which is exactly what they're looking for. They've got a long list of things that they'd like to achieve. They Mm -hmm. haven't got anybody to lead all of them over time. Mm -hmm. Will you at least come and meet with them? And would you go and visit the country? We were actually looking to buy a house at the time. Right. In the evening. So it was in the UK. In the UK. Okay. So it's perfect timing on one respect because it stopped us from buying a house, which would have... And so... Uh, we then visited Saudi Arabia, visited Jeddah, and, and that led us to a phrase that we say, we believe you don't really know somewhere until you've visited or, or, or lived there to make a, an informed opinion. Sure. And found the people lovely, uh, really sort of solid Christian, solid Muslim values, and there's a lot of similarities between the two from, mm-hmm. a, from a religious perspective. And the opportunity started out as would I lead the development of their retail banking strategy and then the implementation of that across new branches, new ATMs online, uh, which would be something new for me. Would I lead the development and implementation of a customer segmentation model for their small business and wealth management and mass retail uh, client base? And 
would I build a home finance business for them from scratch, an Islamic home finance business, mm-hmm. built on fees and not on interest, right. because okay. interest isn't allowed. Mm-hmm. And that then, that was the first sort of piece of the jigsaw, as it were, and there was a, a list of other things that they wanted to, to launch as well. Mm-hmm. And so it was one of those opportunities that I, we sat down and we said, well, how would I feel in three years' time if I'd not we don't take the opportunity mm-hmm. and so we moved to, to Jeddah uh, family as well and spent three years in, in Saudi Arabia um, on a personal basis um, people think it's very restrictive certainly for my for my wife because she couldn't drive for example sure, yeah we lived in a housing complex um, that could be called a compound because mm-hmm. it had eight foot high walls and two foot of barbed wire and two machine gun posts outside right. Um, however, inside the walls, there was over 2,000 houses, yeah. uh, 21 swimming pools, tennis courts, basketball courts, soccer courts, shops. And so, um, and on the driving aspect, we had a driver. And so I always say, well, okay, Tracy couldn't work. However, she had a chauffeur. So mm-hmm. if you were sat in London and someone said to you, would you like a chauffeur? Right. No one in their right mind would say no. Sure. So here we are. We have an opportunity to have a chauffeur. So Yeah, I know uh, many uh, executives who go and work in those kind of environments. And uh, it can become quite an addictive lifestyle because coming back uh, to a typical Australian city and not having anywhere near the sort of benefits and access to uh, you know, living nannies and the kind of um, amazing support that's there, uh, people really miss it and so they end up uh, uh, chasing those opportunities around the world rather than coming back. Uh, do you have a part of you that really misses that kind of lifestyle? Um, not not really. I mean, that was one of the reasons we left. Um, so we, uh, we signed and completed a three-year contract. Right. And several reasons why then we, we said, well, we another three years doesn't work for us Mm -hmm. Uh, and one of them was we wanted to remain in the real world as it were because it can be quite a a surreal environment Mm -hmm. Uh, and for for me remaining relevant uh, in the career and and, and industry and so while it would have been great on one hand to spend another three years there on the other hand it would have been restricted and, and you can see how people get used to certain things they also get used to working in one culture mm-hmm and I've been fortunate enough to work across multiple cultures and I really enjoyed that. So mm-hmm. I thought, actually, this is another great learning opportunity I've taken and, and grown from. So now's a good opportunity to move on. Um, plus, we had our son was born in Saudi Arabia um, and three years, the same would apply to my, my wife and my family. You know, while it, there, you can look at the lifestyle as restrictive or as an opportunity to mm-hmm. learn and experience, if it carries on for too long, you then lose track with you know sure. what what reality is. So, um, for personal reasons, we we then said it's time right. to move on. Okay. Um, and we actually then we were planning on emigrating to Australia at that time, mm-hmm. and I'd gone onto the board of a fund management business as a non-exec director, and I was explaining after a board meeting. Uh, that we were moving on in in April and the owner it's a privately owned business the owner of the fund management business said well why don't you come and join me as CEO then in London Mm -hmm. and so our our trip to our immigration to Australia took a turn back to the UK 
uh, which worked on a, on a lot of fronts for us. Um, on a personal basis, it was for two years to see family and mm -hmm. get our family in the UK used to the fact that we were going to be living for the rest of our lives across the other, the other side of the world. Um, from a career perspective, it was an opportunity to transform, completely transform a business from being a passive fund of funds where allocations were made on a passive basis into an active uh, managed investment scheme across, across the world where we had an active investment management team picking stocks and making decisions um, as well as setting, setting that up from scratch in the UK with European Union regulations that would could meant the fund can be sold across the globe um, and you know, so that those were pulling both career and personal strings from that perspective mm. and that sounds like quite an interesting departure for you I mean it's uh, while still within the financial services sector I mean it was a very different role um, and for people who are perhaps again not that familiar with some of the terminology and so on to talk in a bit more detail about exactly what all that means yeah so I I've been fortunate to be able to apply my skills to different parts of financial services fairly successfully um, and funds management isn't something that I've been involved in directly or mm. have led. So that, that, that led me to need to learn the regulations very quickly uh, to become accepted by the UK Financial Services Authority as a responsible manager for my qualifications, experience and, and knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, led me to learn what and how an investment fund so here there would be called a management managed investment scheme yes that an investor can uh, invest into works from top to bottom and then how do you set up the systems finances to support such mm -hmm. uh, it meant that we because it was from scratch we needed to set up stockbroking accounts with stockbrokers across Africa because the first fund was an African fund okay uh, and the other pull to transform that business and, and launch it really was because we committed to donate up to 25% of revenues to create jobs and transform lives in the countries where the fund was focused on. So the first fund was an Africa fund and so we donated up to 25% of revenue through microfinance to support small businesses and transform people's lives across Africa. Mm. And had that been part of their intention before you became involved or did you bring that to the table? It was part of the discussions when I was talking to another pool who owns the business as to if we're going to move from a passive funds manager to an active, right. what are going to be the points of difference? Okay. Why would people invest their savings and future retirement money into, mm -hmm. into that fund? Mm -hmm. And we both have a passion for giving back and, and in the community uh, we both have a passion for Africa and so there was a, a link there we said well what how do we do something that works like that interesting and, and then over several months of working together on that the sort of nuts and bolts of it and fine print got put together right and so that was uh, part of the unique selling proposition mm. of the fund and how did you bring that awareness to your potential market uh, in order to engage with the people who had a personal appetite to do that? Yeah, so we uh, distributed through financial planners, financial uh -huh. planner networks um, across different countries through platforms that pension funds and super funds would invest in as well. Right. And so the 
passive funds business had a small network mm -hmm. um, that we started to leverage from. Mm -hmm. um, but Big White Candid, it was then a case of looking at, well, which are the largest financial planner networks in the different countries that yep. we were targeting? Um, which are the largest platforms that planners utilize? Mm -hmm. Which are the largest online platforms in the UK and Europe, Latin America and Asia? And then while we were setting the fund up, approaching them, telling them the story, pitching to them the, the idea, and gradually convincing people over time to have the fund on their list of funds that are available for people to invest in, or to have the fund on their platform so that someone can click, and if they want to invest in Africa, right. or emerging markets, then Africa becomes an option, and, and then ours is one of the funds that is that option. Okay. At the time, it was 2009, 2010, so it was right at the height of the GFC. Mm -hmm. So with hindsight, not the best time to launch an emerging African investment fund, mm -hmm. uh, but also the best time on the flip side of that in the sense that there was only three to four funds globally that gave a holistic African exposure. Right. So it was very unique. So when it launched, it was the only, f it was the fund with the most diversification across Africa as a whole, as opposed to be focused mainly on South Africa. Okay, sure. So there's a few unique selling points yeah, that enabled us to open doors that we might not otherwise have done being a fairly small mm -hmm. uh, funds business compared to you know, the likes of Fidelity, JP Morgan and mm -hmm. BlackRock, who, mm -hmm. are, who are huge. Sure. And how did that role get you finally to get to Australia? Well, that, that role was for, like I say, for two years. And then um, we emigrated uh, beginning, end of 2010, beginning of 2011. And at the time, I then said it's time I needed to resign as chief executive mm -hmm. uh, of, the, of the group. Um, however, the, the owner asked me then to stay on and be chief executive for Asia and focus on building out our Asian business mm -hmm. um, based out of Perth, which is where we were emigrating to. Mm -hmm. And I, because of the transforming lives, um, there's a huge heart pull there to make the business extremely successful. Um, because of the launching at the time of the GFC, we were one to two years behind our business plan. And so that discussion worked for both sides, both for us on a personal basis, move, emigrating, but I can take the role with me as it were, but now focus on Asia. And for the business that Asia is a growing market, as we know, growing wealth, as we've seen over the last uh, decade. Uh, gives the business access to that market. And from our small office and base in Hong Kong, we'd not had huge success of cracking the Asian market because mm -hmm. we've been focusing on Europe, the UK, and we'd started to have wins in Latin America quicker. So uh, I then spent two years focusing on the Asian market, uh, building out distribution across Asia, China, Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia, Taiwan and Japan sounds mm -hmm. sounds very glamorous. Sure. Um, however, after two years of spending three weeks um, out of five out of Australia, mm. uh, the sort of packing the suitcase on a Sunday it, it gets less glamorous, and the doing the red eye flights is certainly less glamorous. And I imagine for your wife uh, moving around the world, wherever she moves, you're not there anywhere. That must have been a bit frustrating for her. Yeah. So I mean, and that was one of the the triggers for then saying, right, let's look for a role in <clears throat> in Australia. They've been hugely successful at setting the Asian distribution up for the business. We've got the largest. 
Asian Financial Planner Network, over 1,500 financial planners across Asia that was now signed as a distributor, two of the largest three expatriate, bro- expatriate brokerage firms. Mm-hmm. So the business had gone from only a handful to over 20, 30 distributor bases across Asia, which was great. Um, and we realized sort of one night that my family had emigrated, but right. Paul hadn't emigrated right. because of what you said. So the, the hunt for a role in, in Australia began. Uh-huh. Um, so I started to network around Perth. And it was quite interesting. That made me realize how few people I knew, uh, except for people, family, friends, well, not family here, but friends linked to the schools. Um, and then the role at Collection House as Chief Operating Officer became available, and that was being advertised for an executive recruitment firm. Right. So that was very interesting in the sense that the role had diversity of businesses, which keeps the variety, need a need for growth mm-hmm. uh, on the revenue side because they've grown profits through cost management rather than revenue growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was as a, at a C-level, which gave would give me in Australia uh, a VAT on my CV and mm-hmm. a publicly listed company, mm-hmm. which would also, for me, transfer my skills from the UK and internationally into the Australian environment and would need me to learn the, the regulatory requirements, et cetera, et cetera, in Australia. The only um, challenge was it was based in Brisbane and That's right. So, so almost so, moving from Perth to Brisbane would be the same as moving across three different countries in uh, the UK uh, uh, into Europe and Africa. It, it would be, Richard. It would be kind of naively, I guess. Geography's never been a, a strong point. <laughs> um, but naively hadn't realised how big Australia was. Right. Nor, nor had realised, and like I said, I'd spent most of the two years in Asia, realised that 80% of the business in Australia is done off of the East Coast sure. or out of the East Coast. So we visited Brisbane, fell in love with the place because it's very similar to There's a lot of similarities yeah. to yeah. Perth. And um, the role was an excellent fit, so uh, we took the plunge to move to Brisbane. Uh, my daughter was 12 at the time, and I remember it's a very vivid memory in the back of my mind that whenever I think about the move, I think uh, her first words when we you know, moved into a rented accommodation here was, and she'd started school, she said, that's it, Daddy, I'm not moving school again. Right. You've, it's great, lived in five or six countries and yep. several schools, and this is, don't, don't move me again, please. Mm. And so when you joined Collection House, what was the mandate for the role? Uh, what were you employed to do? Um, I was employed to grow revenue, mm-hmm. uh, win business, grow revenue, grow profit, mm-hmm. and to look at developing uh, other lines of revenue for the business as well. Mm-hmm. Because while the business had had a very successful period of profit growth, uh, the last couple of years prior to me joining had been linked more to cost management. And so it needed revenue growth to continue profit growth. As I would say, as the numbers get, the dollar numbers get bigger, the, it's more difficult to achieve the same percentage sure, of course. Um, as the dollars are getting larger. So um, that was the general mandate. And joined there in the beginning of March 2013. And then led each business to grow, but in different ways because the businesses were different parts of their business cycle Mm -hmm. and were in slightly different client bases and slightly different segments of the uh, receivables management business. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, uh, 
gained licensing and launched a financial intermediary business uh, to create a new revenue stream for the group as well. Um, so it was a very sort of exciting sure. three years. It was excellent for helping me to travel around Australia because mm-hmm. I had operations in Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney, Newcastle, here in Brisbane, then in New Zealand and the Philippines, in Manila, that reported to me. Um, so great opportunity to uh, learn quickly around the different cities, uh, get a very broad understanding and, and then deep understanding of different clients at a national level of the large national corporations, and uh, bring to the business a business development and a client-centered focus, mm-hmm. which uh, that industry doesn't necessarily have naturally mm-hmm. because of the nature of the sure. part of the sort of value chain that it is for financial services. Uh, and that's one of the reasons we were able to win you know, the largest contracts that Collection House has ever won from an outsourced collections management right. basis. Okay. Uh, the first significant federal contract that they've ever won, mm-hmm. as well as increasing the, you know, the debt purchase business. So during those just under three years, we doubled, doubled profit, just over doubled profit. And like I say, the dollars get bigger, so it's more difficult to keep those percentages going. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was linked to revenue growth rather than cost reduction, which was great. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the, the other people said to me, well, what's one of the things that has triggered some of that growth? And while I've then talked about clients and, and financial numbers, um, Perhaps the most endearing thing that I, I, I did there was to introduce a leadership um, development okay. uh, and a culture linked to people and leadership development mm-hmm. and the importance of culture internally within the organization because that's what gets exposed externally to customers. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's okay to say we need to improve customer service, we need to improve our client service, but people have to know what do you mean by that what are the values that matter to clients and have to experience that being led um, but also experience that in a training and development environment as well so mm-hmm. that there's that they, they feel part of a movement rather than just a sole person trying to improve service to, to one client or win, win new business mm-hmm. yeah that's a uh, you know culture and leadership development are terms that are bandied around a lot and uh uh, some organisations seem to do it very well and other organisations uh, seem to fall short of the mark. Uh, for you, in terms of really developing your leadership around that context of culture, what are some of the, the critical elements of that that were part of your initiative to get those outcomes? We, I needed some external assistance with that for, mm-hmm. for the organisation and uh, General Manager for HR was all supportive as well. So we. Uh, utilized an organization to do it their impact leadership program okay and we took all of the operations management through that from across the different locations and across the, the, the sites and different businesses and that gave us a broad uh, commonality of understanding of what we mean by leadership mm-hmm. and from there we were able to pick out what values and what mattered to us and what phrases um, and there's a, a little book by Brian Tracy called Eat That Frog. Yes, know that one. So I was looking for what are phrases, 
language that we can utilize consistently that link with that program, that link with what we are doing, which is about servicing clients, providing excellent service to customers who we're calling up to then help them really improve their financial predicament that they've found themselves in, mm -hmm. uh, that will improve our, our results. And so the, the book helps, a, a book that anybody can read, and then phrases out of, out of that book, mm -hmm. and then utilizing uh, themes each year mm. for everybody to have a mantra around. Um, and so the, the theme that we utilized for, and, and were in from July onwards last year was around focus mm -hmm. um, because we, we needed to focus on our clients, focus on our customers and really not be distracted by a lot of the changes we brought in mm -hmm. because we'd already upgraded one of the businesses to the latest IT so software system and so they'd gone through a transformational change and so they then needed now to focus on the day-to-day -day, whereas another business needed to move on to that system as well so it was what does each area need to focus on mm -hmm. um, and, and I tended to then use things like attitude and activity drive your altitude for example as phrases okay, and right. I like things that are start with the same letter yes to make it easy for me to remember but right. also easy for everybody to remember sure um, introduced uh, more sharing of general information like that I introduced mm -hmm. a, a leadership update as well and so really a lot an effort around engaging the team the broader team mm -hmm. not just my direct reports in the positivity and intention of the organization mm -hmm. and to keep them part of the journey of, of where we were going mm -hmm. and, and in terms of quantifiable tangible outcomes of those uh, initiatives, what, what were some of the ways that you would have measured to know that they'd been successful? This is the wondrous question around training and, and, and when you get asked, how, how do you measure the impact of culture? I guess the, the, the things that pop out to me were that people left the organisation of their own volition when they didn't fit with what we were mm -hmm. doing. Mm -hmm which was about having a positive performance orientated people yeah. team and, and so if you wanted to be negative you didn't want to progress and, and grow mm -hmm. and you didn't want to be part of the team you just felt uncomfortable and so they self-selected out self-select out um, there was then those that were through performance management managed out mm -hmm. because at the time of going through the Impact Leadership Program, we introduced a new way of managing performance management across the organization mm -hmm. linked to both um, behaviors and results. And that consistency then across the different businesses created its own momentum. Um, and, and while challenging at times, that gave everybody a sense of fairness mm -hmm. um, and a sense of uh, perspectives and benchmarkers to what we are as a, as a team. So there was the self-selection and then the selection linked to behaviors and values. And so, unfortunately, people, some people, I can remember one of them had to leave who was very well liked, but was not applying or, or, uh, the values, was going directly opposite to them. Mm -hmm. And so, unfortunately, they had to leave the mm -hmm. organization. Um, the other was seeing how people were leading their teams. 
and how that changed. Mm -hmm. And the organization is very good at getting feedback from uh, its customer service officers, so mm -hmm. its troops at the, at the coalface. And so feedback from them around the changing ways of behaviors of our management team, because we took all of the managers through the training. So you're doing employee engagement survey type things? We did employee engagement survey. We had feedback loops um, to the leaders of those businesses. And also we got feedback through the ideas generation okay. um, um, portal, mm -hmm. as it were. And then the third one, which is the one that sort of touches the sort of heartstrings for me was when people were using common language, common phrases, mm. and were sharing learnings mm. across different businesses in different cities and sometimes different countries mm -hmm. uh, broadly, which linked in or evidenced what we had agreed from um, the course we were going to take away from it. Right. So one of the um, One of the things was playing above the line. Are you playing above or below the line? And that went all across the organisation for, for commonality. There was so there was some common do's and don'ts, what we bring to the table. And they went across and they were chosen by the team, not by me. Yes. Um, and the team then took them forward and the you know, so it was not just myself, there was the leadership team and then there was the, the management team mm -hmm. all brought into those. Right. I guess those I would say are tangible. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not as tangible as saying how much dollars did that generate or no, how no. much dollars sure. did that save. But you could measure it, it in terms of retention of talent and uh, you know uh, uh, net promoter score type feedback in relation to employee engagement, etc. Yes. Okay, that's great. So um, uh, uh, it sounds as though you've been able to draw on this vast experience of working across multiple and extremely diverse cultures and geographies. Uh, which has really helped you to um, uh, determine your own specific leadership style. Well, what do you think um, in particular that um, uh, true global experiences enabled you to uh, weave into how you lead businesses? I guess for me leadership is around integrity and insight mm -hmm. and the global experience has probably the biggest thing that has given me is humbleness to collaborate across people teams at all levels so um, in a the, the last role ideas from a customer service officer who just joined the organization are just as worthy for consideration as ideas from a senior leader sure. or, or my ideas. And so um, having worked across countries and across cultures, there's there's that aspect of humbleness and team and, and the, the sum of the parts is greater than the, the individuals. Um, the other aspect of the, the global piece, I guess, is I've, I've seen technology used in different ways mm -hmm. and I've seen it misused in different ways mm -hmm. and I always say technology is the tool it's not the end in mind and so utilizing technology to make people's lives easier is important provided the technology doesn't become the goal yeah, the goal sure. is the how do we make yep. the, the delivery easier and mm -hmm. it easier for our people mm -hmm. so I guess 
the, the importance of people, uh, a phrase, people buy from people, sticks with me and, and has since I've learned that in, in Africa. Um, and so even behind the biggest tech companies, there are people. Mm -hmm. and, and so uh, I think I've learned that that comes first, your people come first. And that's why I said the most endearing thing for me, I believe, is what I've left with the people mm -hmm. at organizations and the teams that I've, I've built because different people bring different capabilities and skills and it's unlocking that potential, which you can only do if you really get to understand your people, mm. listen to them, and then give them the freedom to succeed and give them the freedom to make mistakes. Sure, okay, work. all right, great. Let's uh, look to the future now. So uh, you're here in Brisbane, uh, finally, uh, uh, it sounds as though keen to put down some more permanent rates. Finally settled, yes. Uh, so, you know, what's next? In uh, You've got a view out there in the market in terms of uh, where your career is going to unfold. Well, what are the kind of things you're keen to uh, to get on and do now? Um, great question. I'm looking now at what is the, the next the journey, the next part of my career. I'm very fortunate that my family have decided we're living in Brisbane. So the home base is Brisbane, which is great for me. That gives, uh, and I'm very happy about. Um, I'm, I'm sure whatever role will involve some form of travel. Sure. And, and the family are all accepting of that. Um, for me, I'm now looking at what, what role will utilize my general management mm -hmm. skills and my C-level skills, um, utilize my ability to energize people and grow a business. Um, and because I've done that across multiple sectors in financial services ranging from retail banking to corporate banking to funds management to collections and receivables management I believe there's opportunity that those skills would stand me in good stead across most industries mm -hmm. where a pure technical capability isn't required mm -hmm. um, so ideally uh, a business that is looking for someone to to lead bring a sense of energy uh, bring a high performance culture in a positive manner together um, and really to take that business to the next level. Mm -hmm. um, if it's a business or a not-for-profit organization that pulls on the heartstrings of giving back to the community, then, then that would be fantastic. Mm. Okay, great. And one of the uh, intents of the Arate podcast is for people who aspire to C-level roles and to non-executive directorships uh, to listen to those who have walked the path before them and, and uh, pick up some uh, key learnings what what a just to finish out this uh, interview because uh, you know we've uh, taken a lot of your time. You know what what are some of the things that uh, you would pass on to those uh, uh, people still in their um, career journey towards C ship C level roles that um, you think have been really integral to you achieving what you have in your career. Uh, I'll go back to the two eyes that I used of integrity and insight. Mm -hmm. Um, the integrity for me stands for uh, lead, to lead people and for people to follow you. Uh, you have to be real and I believe you've got to be down to earth and integrity gives you that and builds trust for people to be able to trust you and follow you with what is their life and their future. Mm -hmm. um, and coupled with the insight aspect which is really around seeing the wood for the trees mm -hmm. and seeing the business and the marketplace for what it what it really is mm -hmm. um, because if you put those two together I think that leads you to challenge yourself to do the right thing mm -hmm. and so 
Um, leadership isn't easy at times because the right thing isn't always the the easy path. Sure. It's sometimes the path less traveled. Yes. Uh, it, it means sometimes delivering difficult messages to people and with people. But if they are delivered with honesty, best intention and integrity, uh, most people will receive those well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would I would say sense check how comfortable you are with those those aspects, um, and if you if you are and you find yourself always ending up leading the, the sports team or, or leading the the music band or or always involved in some aspect of, of leadership, then you're also already part of the way there. So look at what is it about those things in your personal life and interests that you can you're really good at and and learn what you're not so good at mm. um, because we're all not so good at some things uh, and backfill for those so yes yeah, so i have a phrase for for me which is i do what i say i will and my people i openly tell my people that when i when i join and work with them and they hold me accountable for that which is mm-hmm. fantastic um, because that for me just openly emphasizes the need to be open, honest, transparent, mm-hmm. and 100% trustworthy. Mm. Yeah, I think that uh, uh, integrity of action is a very important one. And uh, I was reading uh, recently about the Knights of Camelot, and uh, you know they would very, very reluctantly agree to do something because by agreeing to it, they were committing their life to seeing it done. And I think... Uh, a lot of us often will agree to things frivolously or just because it's easier to say yes without a true intention to uh, to finish it out. And at the end of the day, you know, a critical uh, learning for me early in my career, which I'm sure is the same for you, is that uh, if you under-promise and over-deliver, it's, uh, uh, you build a far greater personal brand than if you uh, do the reverse. So great learning there. Thanks, Paul. Really appreciate your time and uh, have a fantastic afternoon. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Richard. Okay. Well, I trust you enjoyed that conversation with Paul. I certainly found his career very interesting in the fact that it's taken him all around the world to some very interesting destinations and having worked for some very large and well-known organisations. If you've enjoyed the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you could go to iTunes and offer a rating and make some comments. Uh, That certainly uh, would be great to get your feedback there. And uh, please uh, pass on details about the podcast to anybody that you think may have an interest uh, so they can subscribe and hear the interesting guests, not only that we've already had on, but that are coming on over coming months and hopefully years. So I look forward to uh, welcoming you to another Arate podcast in the future. And in the meantime, have a fantastic day.